All right, title of the message this morning is Taking God at His Word. Taking God at His Word. Uh, and, and really, loved ones, there is so much. There's so much that's going on here, uh, it, really in all of chapter 3, but even in this particular text uh, that we have in front of us this morning, massive implication uh, for life, uh, for, for theology and doctrine, with respect to eternity, so many different things that are going on. But when you drill down to the root, when you get down at the base level, the foundation of what is going on in this passage, it is a failure of God's people to take God at his word, to believe what God God has said. And so we have to think rightly about God's word. We want to believe God's word. We want to adhere to God's word. And so this morning, as we look at taking God at his word, just two points, two things uh, in the text uh, that we're going to see, really two main ideas, a number of things that we're actually going to see here in the text. Uh, But first of all, make note of this in verses one through five, that God's word is attacked. God's word is attacked. It's assaulted. We're told at the beginning of verse 1 that there's this serpent who is more crafty than any other beast of the field, right? There's this shrewdness to the serpent, and the serpent is going to employ this really multi-layered assault or attack on God's Word. And what that attack is meant to do, it's meant to create a level of doubt and confusion and uncertainty in Eve that will eventually lead her to a hostility toward God's Word. And so I want to be really clear right out of the gate. That what you're seeing in Genesis 3, that same element unfolds in your life and in my life dozens, if not hundreds of times every single day. Every single day, these same assaults, these same lies, these same half-truths are going on in your heart and in your mind. And so this has massive bearing on how you and I live. We are constantly, constantly engaging with what's going on here in Genesis 3, right? Satan's attempt to undermine God's good decrees that that, that would leave us doubting, leave us uncertain, leave us unsure, or maybe even driving us to the place of hostility toward God and his word. One other note that I think is really important just to frame the context of what's going on here. Do not forget, do not forget that Every single item that Adam and Eve enjoy in the garden has come to them by and through God's good word. All of it, right? So day and night, sun, moon, and stars, the the trees that feed them and shade them, the animals that populate the garden, the rivers that run through the garden, the mineral resources that, that are bountiful in the garden, even the perfect spouse that they have. Did you know that used to exist? There was a time when there was a perfect spouse, No longer, right? Because they're going to screw it up here for us in Genesis 3. But there was a moment where there was a perfect spouse. Even that was from God's good word. And so the issue at play is the integrity and the trustworthiness of God's word. And the attack on what God has said is going to lay the groundwork for Eve's deception and for Adam's rebellion. And what Satan wants to do here is the same thing that Satan wants to do with you and I. Are any of you aware that there's a football game going on later today? Right? We're all aware the Super Bowl is going on later today. Right? Um, anyone not aware the Super Bowl is going on? Like, what rock have you been living under? That's awesome. I don't know how you did that. Okay, I'm just happy Tom Brady's not playing. Right? That's like, that's a win. Okay, but listen, listen. As you think about that game later today, what kind of advantage would it be if one team was given the other team's playbook? They would have a massive advantage, right? They would know what's coming. Loved ones, this right here is Satan's playbook. 
This is how he operates. You're going to be given everything that he wants to do to try to undermine and distort and sabotage our lives. It's all going to unfold right here in chapter 3. So let's get into this. God's word is attacked. We're going to see a series of different ways that God's word is attacked and really an escalation of how God's word is attacked in this exchange between the serpent and the woman. So look at the end of verse 1. Uh, He said to the woman, here comes this crafty serpent, the shrewd serpent. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In fact, there's multiple attacks that unfold here in verse 1. Here's the first, that God's word is questioned. That God's word is questioned. Did God actually say? God really say that? Is that what God actually said? Right? And so the serpent, in the form of a question, is reshaping what God has said to fit his own interests and his own agenda. Right? He's questioning. And, and here's the danger in this, or the problem in this. The implication of this question is, is that, that, that Eve has misunderstood what God said. Eve, you didn't really understand what God, say, uh, what, what God said. And so what it does is it opens the door to this notion that God's word is now subject to our own interpretation. Right, This blasphemous notion that I get to be the determiner, that I am the arbiter of what God meant and, and what God's intention is at any point in time. And this perceived freedom to question God's word plagues the American church today, does it not? Right? We, we have mistakenly positioned ourselves as the interpreters of what God has said, not, not, not those who are working to understand God's intent. Now, now, to be clear, right, right, that, that there is a fairness of you and I approaching the Bible and asking questions for the sake of clarity. Right? That, 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 that's entirely fair. But, but that's not what's going on here. There, there's no clarification. This is an attempt to reinterpret what God has said. Right? So, yes, we can be people who are seeking clarity by asking questions. That's someone who's submitted to the, to the authorial intent of what God has said. That's very different than I'm going to attempt to reinterpret what God has said. And so if you find yourself making statements like, it mean, what this means to me, I'd like to think, it seems to me, loved ones, those are all forms of what the serpent is doing right here in Genesis 3.1. You're doing the same thing that the serpent, you're, you're doing his work. Oh, God help us that we would receive the word with conviction and confidence and not with questioning. Right, that this first attack on God's word, it's a questioning of God's word. Did God, God really say this? And then notice what a question the serpent poses. He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. The second attack that we see is that God's word is distorted. God didn't say that you couldn't eat of any tree. God actually said you could eat of every tree except one. Right? But, but Satan here has distorted and twisted God's word. Now to be fair... To be fair, the greatest lies are all rooted in some level of truth, right? That, that, that's what makes them believable. And it's the same that's going on here uh, with, with the serpent. He retains enough of the truth to lull Eve into this trap. But make no mistake, God's word is being distorted in this moment. And the distortion really is twofold, right? Because he's saying that, that you couldn't eat of all of the trees, Right, you notice the two different ways that he did that? Right? God's initial statement was you could eat of every tree except one. Satan's saying you can't eat of any of the trees. 
Right? There's multiple distortions at play. And what Satan is doing is he's actually taking God's generous gift to eat from all of the trees, and he's suggesting that God has given far more restriction than he actually has. And what he's intending to do is to cast this level of doubt in Eve. Right? That, that God is not this generous provider. He's actually this miserly and stingy um, restrictor. But God gave every tree, right? Satan is distorting and twisting God's word. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Distortion is what leads to doubt. Did you hear that? When the word gets distorted, doubt is not far behind. What Satan wants to do, he wants to create uncertainty, he wants to create confusion, uh, and that's going to lead you and I to doubt. But what does God's word do? God's word is going to bring clarity. God's word is going to bring surety. God's word is going to bring certainty. I mean, th think about just even in this exchange. If you go back to 2.16 and 17, God was abundantly clear. Right, God was clear about the provision. You can eat of every tree. God was clear about the prohibition, except that one. And God was clear about the consequences. If you do, you will surely die. And the distortion of Satan is intended to create confusion. And so listen, 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 church. Our ability to combat the lies of the enemy is tied to knowing, trusting, and understanding what God has actually said. Did you hear that? Your ability to combat the lies of Satan is tied to the fact you actually know what God has said in his word. So, so here are questions you've got to be asking yourself. Are you allowing God's word to inform how you live? Right? Does the Bible drive how you live? When you think about what you do, do you say, I can do this because the Bible says so, or I can do this because I want to? Right? Or I'm not going to do this because God's word has been clear to not do this. What's driving how you live? Secondly, are you allowing God's word to inform and instruct how you think? When you think about life and you think about the world, you think about what's going on around you, is it God's word that's informing and instructing that? Are you being uh, just, just cast along with whatever the next wave in society is? Are you allowing God's word to bring clarity and certainty and confidence in your life, because if not, you are setting yourself up to be deceived. Now, I feel like we talk about this every week, but, but to do this means you have to read your Bible. You have to be familiar with the Word. You, you have to become more and more um, intimately aware of what God is saying and what God is doing in His Word so that you can identify the counterfeit that Satan is attempting to propose. I was struck just even thinking about this week that, that when we walked through Hebrews in the fall, there were five warnings in the book of Hebrews. They all had to do with listening to God's word. Right? Here were the five warnings. Pay attention to the word, believe the word, grow in the word, obey the word, receive the word. It was a whole book of the Bible. They were all about believing what God has said in his word. How are you learning and growing in God's word? Now, now I, I hope... Right? Our, our earnest desire is that Sunday morning is helpful for that. Okay? But listen, th this is not going to be everything. The real progress is going to be in between the lines of Monday through Saturday that you make a commitment to learning, studying, growing, and just applying yourself to God's Word. Here's the problem for so many of us. You start talking about reading your Bible, and it's just this duty and this obligation and this have to 
that, 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 that is a part of our life. No, no, loved ones, it is a get-to, it is a treasure, it is an opportunity, it is a joy. Because it is through the word that God makes himself known. It's through the word that God makes himself known. So when you think about reading your Bibles, here's how I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it in two ways. One, that this is how God makes himself known. Let me try to give you a human illustration to help capture this. Uh, so a number of years ago, when I was, when I was growing up uh, across the street from us, some of you have heard me uh, talk about one of our old neighbors, and, uh, a lady named Jane Slusher. So Jane uh, lived across the street, family friend of ours, great, godly lady. Um, and so she and her husband, Ron, they had four young boys. Um, and Jane found out in probably her mid-30s that she had cancer. And so went through, uh, they went into remission, excited, thankful for that. Actually, after that, had a fourth son. They'd only had three at the time, had a fourth son. Uh, and then about a year after their fourth son uh, was born, realized it had come back. Jane was given really a, a quite limited time uh, to live at that point in time. So I, at that time, her oldest was 10 or 11. Her youngest was probably two um, when she, she got this news. And so she knew that for most of the major moments in her children's life, she was not going to be physically present. And so Jane spent a significant amount of her time writing letters to her sons that they could open on various points in their life, major moments in their life, when they drove, when they graduated, when they got a job, when they got married, when they had a kid. Because she wanted to share herself with her children. And so she wrote to them, so that they would have a word from their mother. Now, this is where the illustration breaks down, right? Because God's not going away. But here's what I want you to think about. Those boys, on those days, how do you think they felt about their mom's letter? Getting married today. Oh, I gotta read mom's letter. I guess I'll go trudge through that. No chance. That was a treasure, right? It was this prized possession, these words from my mom, because she wants to share herself with me on this day. Loved ones, that's what God is doing for us in his word. That is why we have to treasure and value and invest and commit ourselves to God's word, sharing himself with us. And if we don't know what God's word says, we are left exposed and vulnerable to failing to see the distortions of God's word. Here's the third attack that shows up also in verse 1, actually starts the beginning of it. Did God actually say, here's what's going on here, is that God's personal nature is disregarded. I want you to look at the name that Satan uses here. Did God say, Elohim. Now, that title, that name for God was used exclusively in chapter 1. But you remember, you get to the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 4, and that day the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Right, Elohim captured the big, strong, powerful name of God. Yahweh was the personal, relational, covenant-keeping name of God. Right? And so Satan, this isn't an accident, by the way, hated the big, really powerful, not as relational guy, did he say? See, this attack on God is meant to impugn God's character and his nature. It's meant for Eve to question is God really near? Is God really personal? Is God really invested? Which it's stunning. It's stunning how often this lie gets pitched to us, isn't it? Every moment of hardship, every moment of tragedy, every moment of sickness, every moment of difficulty, what the enemy wants to do, he wants to twist the knife. Yeah, God, God's not personal. God doesn't care. God's not near. God's not at hand. 
God's not close. He's just too big and too distant and too preoccupied to care about little old you and your needs. Okay, stop. How many times, how many times in the Bible do you see that actually being the case? Show me a big old fat goose egg. That's never the case. Now, how many times do we see the loving, personal, intimate, tender care of God demonstrated to his people? Well, it's all over the place. In fact, we're not even going to get out of chapter 3 before we see God doing this, where he's going to clothe Adam and Eve with skins. Or you think about later in Genesis, right? We could talk about Abraham, or we could talk about um, Noah, but, but what, what about Hagar, right? Kind of the forgotten woman, exiled into the wilderness, and yet God is going to meet her with a tender word and provisions of food and water. Now, you think about Lot, right? One person, hey, get out before the city is destroyed. You think about the ram that's provided for Abraham so that he doesn't have to sacrifice his son, Isaac. We're not even halfway through the book of Genesis, right? And then you start thinking in a broader stroke. You think of the daily provision and the daily presence of God amongst the people of Israel as they wander through the wilderness, right? You think about Elijah who sustained after a showdown with the prophets of Baal and God meets him there in the desert. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego hanging out in a fire, but they're not alone, are they? Who's with them? The pre-incarnate Christ right there with them in the fire. Think about Judas getting his feet washed moments before he's going to betray Jesus. Think about Peter on the beach, invited to a breakfast that is cooked over a charcoal fire, right? The same place where Peter denied Jesus. Jesus inviting him back to reconcile him to him. God is saying emphatically throughout the entirety of the scriptures, I see you, I know you, I'm with you. There's a lie from the pit of hell. Did God actually say? See, it's the lie Satan wants you and I to believe. God's distant and he's far off. Yet the truth of God's word is that he's personal and that he's near. Here's the fourth. Fourth lie, fourth attack actually comes from Eve herself. Look at verse 2 and 3. What we see here is that God's word is diminished. So Eve says in response to the serpent, here's what she says. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. What? lest you die. God didn't say anything about touching it, Eve. All right, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. God's word is diminished. Now, Eve gives a partial correction, uh, but the correction is lacking uh, in some ways, and she also uh, adds a prohibition. And so, in fact, we see a few different ways that Eve is diminishing God's word. And loved ones, by the way, uh, don't look at her and be like, oh, Eve, you're so lame and you're so bad at this. No, no, you and I are equally, equally capable of falling into this exact same place. Here's some of the ways that we see God's word diminished in Eve's response. First of all, that we minimize God's generosity. That we would minimize God's generosity. It's subtle, but God said you can eat of every tree. Eve didn't say every tree, she just said we can eat of the trees. Right? Her, her statement about the trees, mostly accurate, but not entirely accurate. And what it's been stripped of is the abundant generosity of God. It's not every tree, it's just the trees. Now again, it may may be subtle, it may be inconsequential, uh, but it actually has massive implications because what she's doing is she is minimizing and she is downplaying God's generosity. Loved one, have you ever minimized or downplayed God's generosity? 
Right? That, that, that's, a, that, that's an epic, massive mistake. Because a heart, listen, a heart that is quick to identify God's provision is a heart that will be filled with gratitude. But a heart that is slow to identify God's provision, it may eventually be led, be led to a place of, of cynicism, bitterness, or doubt. And so, so the difference between thankful or ambivalent, or grateful or indifferent, or appreciative or cynical can be really small at its root or at its foundation. And the minimizing and the downplaying of God's generous provision today is what's paving the pathway for an ungrateful, cynical, jaded heart of tomorrow. Right? So God help us, God help us that we would not minimize his generosity. Just even ask yourself as you think about this, are you, are you prone? Are you prone to minimize God's generosity? Are you prone to downplay God's generosity? Do you have certain expectations that you've placed on God? God, you have to do blank. Do you have certain entitlements, things that you think God owes you or that you deserve from God. Can you realize the danger that this leads to when we minimize God's generosity. Not only does she minimize his generosity, she also adds to his restriction, right? Secondly, we amplify God's restriction. God didn't say anything about touching it, yet Eve is saying that whether I eat of it or I touch it, either way, I'm going to die. Um, God didn't say that, right? This is the sin, this right here, this is the sin that so often accompanies the legalist, right? The Pharisee, it's the amplification of restriction. It's an overemphasis on the rules and that the restriction is greater than the very restriction that God himself gave to us. I, I mean, you, you just think about this for a moment. We create a greater restriction than God himself gives? D does anyone else look at that and go, that, that's just silly and foolish? Like, why would we do that? Right? Because we're, we're, we're not more spiritual if it's like, well, God said this, but I'm going to ratchet it up to this. No, that's just dumb. Like, I, I don't know why we would do that. See, and this right here is an equally problematic failure to trust and believe what God has said. Because at the heart of the added restriction is, you know, God hasn't done enough, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it up to where it needs to go. You see, you're still failing to trust what God has said. So whether we're minimizing his generosity or we're amplifying the restriction, in both cases, we're actually diminishing God's word. But then there's, there's a third way that she does it um, that, that may be the most sinister of all. She says, uh, notice that it's what she doesn't say. <clears throat> she says, lest we die. God didn't say lest we die. God said that we would surely die. Here's what's going on with Eve, and it goes on with us as well, that we mitigate God's judgment. We mitigate God's judgment, that we would minimize the severity of the consequence. She lessened the intensity of the judgment that would come if rebellion were to take place. Now, since we have no issue with this whatsoever in our society, I'm just going to move us forward. Uh, yeah, right. This is rampant. It's, this is everywhere in the American church. We've minimized the consequence. We're doing this all over the place. So listen, listen, listen. When someone has to die, the stakes can't be higher. You, you can't create higher stakes. If death is on the line, that, that, that's as high as it gets. We are not saved apart from the shed blood of Jesus. 
So church, we don't serve anyone and we don't help anyone by trying to soften judgment. God help us that we would not mitigate the truth of God's judgment for sin. And then in response to this, the serpent takes it up a notch. In fact, there's a a, a very real escalation that unfolds here in verse 4 and 5. Here's what we see in verse 4 is that God's word is discredited. God's word is discredited. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Hey, I know God said you die. What I'm telling you is you're not going to die. Well, listen, they both can't be right, right? One of them is lying here. And Satan just straight up opposes God. He suggests God has lied. I'm telling you the truth. He's completely discrediting what God has said. And here's something I think it's important for us to know. Note that it's the doctrine of divine judgment. That's the first doctrine that Satan brings under attack and under assault. You won't die. Punishment won't be that bad. It's not that serious. Consequences aren't that severe. Okay, question. If you or a loved one went to the doctor, and you went to the doctor, and you went for a checkup, and in that checkup, the doctor discovered, you're dying. But they came out and they said, everything looks great. Have a great day. And then you found out later, they lied to you about what was going on at that checkup. How many of you are like, nah, that's okay. No one's responding that way. Right? We'd all lose our minds. And rightfully so. That's the same thing that's happening here. This is the exact same thing. The, the serpent's lying about God's truth and specifically about the seriousness of judgment. And here's why this is so important. Because when we fail to understand this, it, it, it undercuts and it undermines our motivation. See, if the punishment isn't that severe, then what does it matter whether or not we share the gospel? What does it matter whether or not I'm clear in getting it right? What does it matter if we make sure people understand what's really at stake? See, that's the reasoning, and that's what the enemy would love for you and I to fall into. So let me just be really, really blunt. This lie right here, you're not surely going to die. This is why so many of us are apathetic about sharing the gospel, because we've bought it. We've bought this lie. Hook, line, and sinker. And we look at family members, and we look at friends, and we look at coworkers, and we go, nah, they're not going to die. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. So pastorally, I can I, I just tell you that, that as the pastors, we were on a retreat a couple weeks ago. We believe that the most glaring issue for us as a church is ways that we are failing in gospel proclamation as a people. I think this right here is one of the foundational issues. We've bought this lie. This is why we're lacking in gospel urgency. It's not that you can't share the gospel. You all know the gospel. That's not the issue. It's that that, that all compulsion, all urgency has been stripped away from us, and it's because we've bought this lie. So can we, we just be clear that rebellion against God brings about death? It's what Paul said in Romans 6, right? The wages of sin is not, it's going to be hard or you're going to be punished. No, the wages of sin is death. We're going to die. Our sin kills us. God's word is discredited. And then here's the final thing we see in verse 5. That God's person is maligned. 
God's person is maligned. The serpent finishes with this line here. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, again, had, had Adam and Eve just believed what God had said, they already knew that they were like God. They were image bearers. But see, the suggestion is that God is withholding something good from Eve. He's like, listen, Eve, you probably don't know this, but I know enough to know that the good stuff God's keeping from you. He's not going to let you have the good stuff. In spite of all the good gifts that were right in front of Eve, right? she could look around that garden and see all those good gifts. She's tempted to believe it. And had Eve in that moment just stepped back and been like, well, I don't know. As I'm looking around, I see a lot of good things. I'm not sure that that squares with what, with what I'm observing. Right? A, simple, a simple scan of her surroundings would have, would have allowed her to see the fullness of God's good gifts to her. And maybe you're tempted to believe that very same thing. That God's withholding the good things from you. Yeah, he's given me this and this and that stuff's okay, but man, like the stuff I really want, the good stuff, why is he withholding from me? You're tempted to buy the lie and see what would have helped Eve is what would also help you for you to be able to just step back and to survey your life and to see the goodness of God in, 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 in a myriad of forms that you would see salvation that's been granted to you through Jesus through no work of your own, purely a gift of grace from God. You would see the provision of God in your life, that God has given you a, a spiritual family, right? that God has given you an eternal hope, that you are an image bearer, that you are a vice regent who rules over creation by God's decree, the physical provision that is true for all of us. right? We live in homes and we drive cars and we're not going hungry. Oh, so, so the question is, what is God withheld? Let me tell you what God has withheld. God has withheld his wrath. That's what God has withheld. God has withheld the justice that you and I deserve in our sin, and he's placed it on Jesus. God has withheld alienation from us and instead has alienated Christ so that we can be reconciled to the Father. God has withheld eternal destruction because he put it on Jesus in our place. We serve a good God who generously provides all that we need in him. And so if you're tempted to believe that God isn't good or that he's withholding, why don't you just step back and survey your life and you can see right through that lie from the enemy. So as we think about right, these six lies, these six attacks, these questions that come to us, right? these are the same things that bombard us today. Listen, Satan doesn't have new tools. He doesn't have new toys. He just recycles things. So, so these items right here, it's the same stuff that shows up in your life and in my life. Here, just real quick, I'll just walk you through, just help us to see how this shows up in our life, right? The, the, the questioning, did God really say? Did God really say we should be Christ-like? Did God really say we have to walk in obedience? Did God really say that blank is wrong? Right, it's the same thing. It's just, it's just repackaged. The distortion of God's word. Well, I have to be good enough. I have to try harder. No, you could never earn it on your own. Well, God wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Nope, God wants you to be holy and sanctified and follow him, right? It's a distortion on God's word. Uh, the, the, the disregarding of God's word. Well, you know, does God really care? He's distant. Why, why, why do we even pray? Does it even matter? Right? We're disregarding what God has given to us in his word, that we diminish God's word. I, I don't have to be holy. I just have to be less bad evangelism, that, that's for other people. 
church that, you know, if I feel like it, it's optional. Right? We're, we're diminishing, discrediting. You know, you know, hell's not that bad. The Bible's not always true. That part of the Bible doesn't apply to me. That's my favorite one. It might be the dumbest thing any human has ever said. Right? My sin is too big. Right? It's all a discrediting. Or ways that we malign God. And we believe God's withholding good from us. That God is this angry, harsh, severe, vindictive God. Right? And all of this, I'll just say it again because we say it every week. That's why we got to be Bible people. That's why we got to be Bible people. Right? Because a failure to trust and rest and obey in God's word is going to lead to destruction. Right? We see this attack on God's word. Now look with me here for just a moment at verse 6 and 7. And we see that sin enters into the world. Sin enters into the world. So having paved the way for doubt and confusion and lack of trust, Satan's led Eve to this precipice of temptation and rebellion. And the temptation for Eve, just like the temptation for you and I, it all comes down to whether or not we're going to trust uh, what, what God has said. Are we going to trust his word? Are we going to trust his person? Do we believe that it's good? Or are we going to buy the lie? Verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Sin enters into the world. A few things here I want to highlight from verse 6. First of all, make note of this, the deception of sin. The deception of sin. Eve was deceived. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, that Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. He was rebelled. We'll get to him in a moment. Eve was deceived. And she certainly was not helped at all by Adam in this encounter. But, but notice how this unfolds. You see in verse 6, right? She sees the fruit and it's good and it's a delight to the eyes and a desire to be made wise. And our temptation is we look at all three of those and we're like, oh, those are all bad and they're all wrong. And we go to 1 John 2 and we talk about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And, and that's fair. But here's what's fascinating. I had never made this connection till this week. Do you realize that those first two descriptions actually came to us in chapter 2? Go back to 2.9. Look at 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight, good for food. Those were good gifts that God gave. So, so what, what, what should jump out to us, right, if we're paying attention to this in context, is the third one that doesn't show up in two, but it shows up here in, in, in uh, chapter three, is this desire to make wise. That's what jumps out. Now, this word desire, as we move through the Old Testament, is going to show up most commonly as the word covetousness. Eve's acting on her desire. Really, this is idolatry that's unfolding. She's holding up the fruit and she's holding up all that the serpent has lied to her about the fruit. And she's going to act on her desire instead of what God has said. Which, by the way, loved ones, that's a, that's a fantastic word for us. Your desire should not be chief in your decision making. God's word should be chief in your decision making. Eve got into trouble because she's following her desires, not what God has said. And so she looks at this fruit and it's good for food, and it's pleasant to the eyes, and, and, and this desire to be made wise, and it's going to lead to death. It's literally going to kill her. It looks pretty externally, but it's lethal, which, by the way, is true for all sin and all rebellion. It looks alluring in the moment. Oh, man, but once you partake, it's killing you. 
See, sin is deceptive. It presents as desirable, but it's lethal. You remember in Proverbs 23, Solomon's talking about wine and how it's pretty and it glistens in the glass. And then he says, but when you drink of it, it bites like a what? Serpent. It's actually coming back. He's saying, man, this is Genesis 3. This is what sin does to us. It looks pretty, but it kills us. Paul says this in Romans 7. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. we got we to be honest about the deception of sin, that, that we can be tricked, that we can be deceived, that just because it looks pretty externally doesn't mean that it's going to kill us internally. God's word is what's going to give us clarity so that we're not deceived. We see the deception of sin. Secondly, what we see in verse 6 is the process of sin. The process of sin unfolds from conception to completion in verse 6. In fact, there's three words that, that capture this. So when the woman saw, that's the first word, she took of its fruit, second word, and ate, third word. That's the process of sin. And I saw it, I took it, I ate it. Which, by the way, almost mirrors what we see in other parts of the Bible. This is what we see in Joshua 7. Remember Achan stole that idol? Here was Achan's response. He said, I saw it, I coveted it, I took it. In James 1, here's how James describes uh, the process of sin. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So in all of this, here's what I want us to capture. Here's what I want us to see in this moment. What you and I fix our eyes on is wildly important because it is going to be the gateway either to righteousness or to sin and death. How we manage our desire determines whether we're going to put sin to death or we're going to fan it into flame. Now, the action of sin is often determined prior to us actually acting it out. We're so fixated on the action itself, but, but most of the time it's determined before we even act. Right? The question is, what am I doing with what I see? Think about words like lust, greed, envy, jealousy, pride. Right? All those, they start with what we're looking at and what am I doing with that desire? So ask yourself, what are you fixing your eyes on? Where are you focusing your attention? What are you doing with your desire? process of sin unfolding for us. And then we also see in verse 6, the willful disobedience of sin. I anyone else find a surprising character at the end of verse 6? Where'd that Adam guy come from, right? Wait, he's been hanging out there the whole time? He has. Not only because of what we see in verse 6, actually this is just an interesting item of note. It's, it's not as obvious, but all of the pronouns in verses 1 through 5 are plural. So one little hint that you might find, look, go back to verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit. So now all the pronouns are plural. The only one that's obvious to us in English is that one, but in the Hebrew they're all plural. Right? Adam's been here the whole time. And so you're like, wait, 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 bro, why are you not screaming at the top of your lungs that what he's saying is wrong. Like, why aren't you offering a corrective? Because Adam is not only complicit, he is willfully disobedient. Adam is not deceived. Adam has chosen to rebel against God. He knows what God says, and he is proceeding anyway. 
Here's what's fascinating when you look at Genesis 3 through a biblical understanding. When you get to the New Testament, the biblical authors see sin and death entering into the human race, not through Eve, but through Adam. So flip over. I want you to see this. Romans 5. Flip over real quick. Romans 5, just so you don't think I'm making something up. Romans 5.12. Therefore... Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, Paul had no problem telling us men or women, right? It's a man. He's talking about Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, men and women, because all sinned. Right? So even in this verse, he's already told us, no, it, it, Adam is the transgressor. He says it again in verse 17 of Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Right, the point is that our sin is a willful disobedience. It's a willful rebellion. It's a willful rejection of God and his word. And loved ones, this is why when we think about sin, this is why when we think about sin, we, we, we can't minimize it. We can't justify it. We can't rationalize it as some kind of mistake, as some kind of slip up or a blunder. Sin, listen to me, is cosmic treason. It's a nefarious evil. It is a sinister wickedness and rebellion of God. This is why God's judgment of mankind is fair, right? Because we don't have some oops. We have calculated rebellion against God. This is why Jesus had to die. This is why blood had to be shed to atone for our sin. It's the willful disobedience of sin. And then the final thing that we see here in verse 7, and really we're going to see over the next couple of weeks as we fill out the rest of chapter 3, is the consequence of sin. It's the consequence of sin. Here's what it says. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, as I mentioned, the consequences are going to continue to unfold, and we're going to do a deep dive on those in the next couple of weeks, okay? Uh, so if you feel shortchanged, just know it's coming. Uh, but, but don't miss a couple of things. First of all, they realize that they're naked. Sure, that was an awkward moment, you're not wearing any clothes. I'm not wearing any clothes. Like, just got weird real quick. But remember, back at the end of chapter 2, naked was this beautiful freedom that God had given to them. But now in their sin, it has become a burden of shame. What their eyes are open to is to their nakedness and to their shame. And so they cover themselves. And Adam and Eve do what every human does. This is the most common response to our sin. Instead of being driven back to the Lord in their guilt, they try to, in this self-atoning way, I'm going to try to cover myself up and make my sin right. And it doesn't work, does it? Right? Because they, they can't cover themselves, and we can't cover ourselves. Because God sees right through leaves and loincloths. Our sin exposes us. Sin leaves us naked and vulnerable and open. And this right here, this right here is arguably the darkest moment in all the Bible. Probably the darkest moment in all the Bible, and yet it's not hopeless. Right? Because the hopelessness of the failure in temptation will eventually be reversed in the hopefulness of God's triumph over temptation. Because unlike Adam who fails, Jesus will successfully endure temptation. So flip with me here. We're going to close Matthew 4, 
Flip with me to Matthew 4. The temptation of Jesus. This is a reversal of what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve fail miserably. Jesus, not so much. He triumphs over temptation. And it's meant to be an apologetic that this second Adam, Jesus, that's what Paul talks about in Romans 5, the second Adam, Jesus, unlike the first Adam, is able uh, to atone for our sin because he's able to withstand temptation. I'm going to read all of, well, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4 of Matthew. It says this, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, at that point, 40 days, you're like legit hungry. Watch Jesus' response. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you fall down and worship me. It's the most ridiculous statement. They're already his. Like, what's going on here? Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Two quick things here and we're done. First of all, Jesus uses the Bible to combat Satan's temptation. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted, and it would have been fine. He didn't have to quote scripture, but he's demonstrating a faithfulness to God's word that was not present in the garden. See, Jesus is doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. Jesus is letting God's word dictate his response. Jared Wilson says it well when he says, Eve ran out of Bible verses. Jesus did not. Right? Jesus just keeps quoting the scriptures. And had Eve just kept quoting God's word back to Satan, Genesis 3 plays very differently. Secondly, that Jesus' triumph over temptation is our hope. Loved ones, our first parents failed in the garden. Jesus successfully endured temptation, which means it preserves his righteousness and it makes him a suitable sacrifice that can go to the cross in our place so that we can be reconciled to the Father after our sin and transgression against him. We are covered by the shed blood of Jesus so that we are made righteous before God. Praise God for that. And so let us be people, let us be people, let us be people that take God at his word. And where we have failed, thank God that we have a Savior that has succeeded, and in that we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the immense immense hope that we have in your word. Father, we pray that We would hear well what you have said to us. God, that we would respond well to your word. And God, that we would be people who would be quick to believe all that you have to say from your word. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen.